I want to thank you again for worshiping with us this morning as we continue now through uh, our series called Journey Through the Bible. This morning we're going to talk about the book of Isaiah. So maybe the book's been a little mysterious to you. It has been to me. But maybe this morning we can just help get a feel for what the Lord has spoken through his servant, Isaiah. But before we get started, let's pray again together. Lord, we thank you now for this opportunity to hear from you. Lord, your prophet spoke of a servant of God who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. Upon him, Lord, would be the chastisement that brings us peace and with his wounds. We would be healed. In 700 years, Lord, before our Savior Christ came, the prophet Isaiah told us of how God would save the world. So I pray now, Lord, that you would just open up your servant's words to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 and... Just to give us some context here, remind us where we have been. Man has fallen from God. And God has initiated his secret rescue plan through the family of Abraham. And he made Abraham a promise to give him the land of his sojournings and to make his offspring as numerous as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the heavens. And that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he sent them into Egypt, and they multiplied there as God had promised. And he freed them from slavery by the hand of Moses with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And he brought them into Sinai, and he made a covenant with them for them to tell them how they are to live as God's chosen, saved, redeemed people. And if they would keep God's covenant, he would bless them and give them the land forever. And they entered into the land under the hand of Joshua, and they, but during the period after Joshua's generation passed away, during the period of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And God raised up kings, first Saul, and then David, a king after God's own heart, who would be the standard of all the future kings. And then it was kings, it was his son, King Solomon, who built the temple for the Lord, and God made David a promise that he would have an offspring who would rule on his throne forever, who would be king over his people forever and be their final and ultimate deliverer. But throughout the period of the kings, Israel abandoned God. They turned over to the idols that he told them not to embrace. They They committed spiritual adultery against the God who had loved them and had saved them. And the kingdom split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And eventually both of them were exiled, kicked out of the land of promise because they broke God's covenant. But in that time period of the kings, God sent them prophets, men, sometimes women of God, 
to call them back to God. You see, sometimes we wander from God. And sometimes God sends people back into our lives to bring us back. And sometimes they tell us things we don't want to hear. But maybe it's what we need to hear. To bring us back to God. And Isaiah was one of these prophets. And we're going to talk about uh, his message this morning. So, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your presence, in your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as, and as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left <coughs> like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity. In solemn assembly, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove evil, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, please the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three themes from the book of Isaiah this morning. Three themes from the book of Isaiah. Number one, sin brings judgment. Number two, 
Future hope comes only through forgiveness of sins. And number three, forgiveness of sin and restoration come through God's servant king. So we'll talk about each of those in order. First, number one, sin brings judgment. See, the prophets can be kind of tricky to understand if we, if we, because they can be hard to locate where they are speaking to in history. It says, Isaiah spoke during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, kings of Judah. Isaiah was written in the 700s B.C., before, during, and after the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you've read the book of Isaiah before, uh, you may or may not have noticed that it's primarily split into two sections, divided in the middle by the story, by story uh, concerning King Hezekiah. If you remember the story, either from Isaiah or I believe it's in Kings and Chronicles, in this story, the Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and has exiled them out of the land. And then the king of Assyria then comes against Judah and comes against Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. And King Hezekiah is the ruler in the land at this time. And Hezekiah pleads with the Lord and he goes to the prophet Isaiah and asks for mercy from God through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied and told him, do not fear, because God, they won't have to lift a finger against the Assyrians. God will take care of it. And if you remember the story, they woke up the next morning and 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army were dead, struck down by the angel of the Lord. And what did the rest of them do? They turned around and went home, back to the kingdom of Assyria. And shortly after this story, after that, in the book of Isaiah, it recounts how shortly after that, Hezekiah became sick. And he pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord heard his plea, the humbling of his heart. And God granted him 15 more years of his life, of life. And then shortly after that, it tells this short little but important story about how envoys came from the kingdom of Babylon. And they visited King Hezekiah because they heard that he was sick and they wanted to wish him well. But of course, they were almost certainly scoping out the land and wanting to develop some kind of profitable partnership or or something for the kingdom of Babylon. And in a moment of pride, Hezekiah shows them everything that they have, the, the entire contents of their treasury, all the glory of his kingdom. He shows these people from Babylon. And after that, Isaiah comes up to Hezekiah and says, One day, all these treasures that you just showed them will be lifted up, taken away into Babylon. You see, the story is actually very fitting as the center of the book of Isaiah because it transitions between the two halves. The first part of the book of Isaiah prophesies primarily about the Assyrian conquest. How because of Israel's sin and they broke the covenant with God, God was going to exile them. And first he was going to do the northern kingdom through uh, the judgment of the nation of Assyria. And we, we have that uh, there because it, it leads into the, the siege of Jerusalem from the kingdom of Assyria. But then the story transitions to talking about Babylon. 
And, and therefore, the, the remaining half of the book of Isaiah talks about the future judgment of Judah that will come upon them from the kingdom of Babylon. And so what we see from all this is that a major theme of the book of Isaiah is sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. Why? Because Israel, as we talked about last time, was exiled out of the land because of their sin. Because they, they broke God's covenant. Now remember, this is important to remember. It's just, really, it's just like our salvation. We don't obey God to be saved. We obey God because we have been saved. God didn't say, get your act together, Israel, and then I'll deliver you out of Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt and then took them to Mount Sinai and said, now that you are saved, here's how you live as my redeemed people to show the world the holiness of the God who has saved you. But in this case, in the old covenant, God did make the, he did make the, the, their, maintain, their maintenance of the land, their continuation in the land of promise, contingent upon their keeping the covenant that he made with them. And they broke it. They broke God's covenant. Why was their sin so grievous to God? Or even more importantly, why is our sin so grievous to God? We get a good reason, part of the reason why from this amazing story in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Why was Israel's sin so grievous to God? Why is our sin so grievous to God? It's very simple. God is holy. God's holiness is his only attribute that is ascribed to him in the Bible to the third degree. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. What does it mean? It means that he exists in total, total and utter moral purity. Not just that, but God is completely other. He is wholly distinct and separate from his creation. Unlike anything else that exists 
God is unique. He is one. There is nothing like him. And we were made to reflect him because we were made in his image. And sin is what? It's a blasphemy of God's image. Because we, because even though we're made in God's image, we, we defile God's image in us when we sin. And we, and we, and being God's image bearers, when we sin, we, we tell creation and we tell others that God is something less than he is. And you see Isaiah, he has this vision. And you see, we don't have many encounters with God like this because if we did, we'd be changed. Isaiah saw God and his first response was this. I'm dead. I'm dead. Why? Because I'm unclean and I'm in the presence and I have seen God. You see, people have died in the Bible for a lot less. Struck down from encounters with God and not being holy. But what we see here is that God does something amazing for Isaiah. Even though he is unclean and he is standing in the presence of God, God sends an angel with a burning coal and touches his mouth and it says it atones for his sins. The only way we can stand in God's holy presence is to have our sins taken away. It's the only way. It's what Isaiah knew. And it's the only way he could stand before God. And we can't miss the symbolism here. Why did, why did the angel touch Isaiah's mouth? Because that's what God wanted to use. Isaiah was going to be a prophet. He was going to speak God's words with his mouth. So the coal touched his mouth to burn away his unclean lips. So that, why? So that he could speak God's pure words to his people. And Isaiah proclaimed this message, these harsh words that we, read, that we read about Israel. I mean, these harsh words that he spoke. He proclaimed it to Israel so that they might come back to God. He called them out on their sin that they might repent. And what I want to do now is when I, I want to look at some particular sins that God, that God through Isaiah was calling Israel to turn from. What are some of these sins? The first and probably the most major sin that Isaiah was sent to call them to turn from, number one here is hypocritical religion. Hypocritical religion. We read it in Isaiah 1, 12 and following. God says, when you come to appear before me, who has, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have been a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What's Israel doing? Think about it. What are they doing? God gave them this whole system of religion to, to, to point them to something. They get, he gave them animal sacrifice to show them that their, their sins had to be atoned for. Their sins had to be paid for. He gave them these, these very detailed rituals to remind them of how holy he is. 
The high priest had to wear bells on his robes in case he got struck down dead in the temple performing his duties. And tradition says they tied a rope around his ankle so they could pull him out. If God killed him, if he didn't do it right. Remember remember the story? Um, Aaron's uh, eldest two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered unauthorized incense, according to the Lord's strange fire, the Bible says, and he killed them both. Because they disobeyed God. In, in other words, they took lightly God's holiness. And what Isaiah is rebuking these people for is, is their hypocritical religion. God did tell them indeed to do all these things, but guess what? Guess what? They thought, well, if I just follow all these temple ritualistic rules, I can still live however I want. If I offer the right sacrifices, if I do this, if I check all my boxes, then God doesn't care how else I live. Wrong. It's wrong. And we all know that this happens today. We all know it's true. I'm afraid, and it's true. There are many people, especially in the Bible Belt, that really believe that because I go to church once, twice a month and throw a little bit of money in the offering plate and, and you know, Pat the pastor on the back on the way out. They think I'm good with God. Do you see what he says? I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Can you imagine these people acting all somber? They got, you know, they, they have all the adornments and, you know, they got their Sunday best on and they're acting all somber and they keep the Sabbaths and they keep the festivals and they do all this thing and they act real pious and real religious and they make themselves feel good by all their religious activity. But when they turn around and go home, they're liars, they're cheats, they're sexually immoral, they wrong other people, they fraud other people, they're self-centered and selfish and they think that God doesn't care. It's a grave mistake. Because what God says is, I don't care about all your sacrifices. I don't care about all your temple visits. I don't care ultimately about your church attendance and your Hail Marys if you don't love and actually serve me. It's a waste of time. In fact, it's, in fact, When you lift up your hands, no matter how piously you do it to pray to me, guess what? I'm not even going to hear. I'm not listening. Hypocritical religion. This is true in every generation. It was true even long after, 700 years after Isaiah. It was still happening in Israel. And Jesus told the people in his day, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and go to church in your name and put some money in the offering plate in your name and pat the pastor on the back in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hypocritical religion. 
You see, if Christ is real, if Jesus Christ is God, if he has risen from the dead, if he is all our hope and salvation and the only way back to God, then he's not, he, then it doesn't make sense to give him 1% of your life. It's all or nothing. He saves all of you or he saves none of you. And to follow him means the surrender of your entire self to Jesus Christ. Whoever would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Second sin that Isaiah called out. This is fascinating here. He called out the nation of Israel in his day for in, in, uh, involving themselves in the occult. In the occult. Isaiah 8, 19. When they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. I kind of hesitated addressing this, but I decided to for this reason. Uh, I listened to a podcast called The Briefing by Al Mohler. He's the president of Southern Seminary. It's five days a week. He talks about the major news events that have happened, and he explains them from a Christian worldview. And just last week, a big section on one of his episodes was about the rise, the, uh, the resurgence of the occult in America. It's becoming popular, very popular once again. In fact, in major cities, there's big business of, of selling uh, spell books and witchcraft uh, types of materials. I saw an, a friend of mine shared with me an article on the news the other day. The largest, the largest pagan church in Alabama is in the city of Auburn, where I used to live. People gather together and they have these interesting rituals that they practice. In fact, you may have remembered that a a New York group made itself famous. Uh, I think it was even in the New York Times because they put hexes on President Trump. It's fascinating. But why would they do this? Why would Israel do something like this? And why does God hate it so bad? It's, It's actually quite simple. Why... Would you go to tea leaves when you can talk to God? Why, if you want to know the future, why would you go to a psychic to learn about the future instead of the one who holds the future in his hands? Why would you go to the dead to learn something when you can talk to the living God? Now, I'm quite convinced that most of these people today who do these kind of things are just shams. Just total shams, scamming people of their money. But let's not be fools or or spiritually ignorant either. There are some who aren't shams. They really do know some things. And here's how. Because of demonic powers. You see, the devil's a genius. He, gets, he can trick some people with some things and some people with others. He tricks modern secular America by making, he, making, him, they, making them think that he doesn't exist. But then some people, they really are drawn 
to that spiritual, that mystical. And he deceives them by actually giving them a little bit of his power. And it sucks them in. It lures them in. Demonic activity is real. We know this for a fact because it happened right there in the Bible. King Saul, you remember? At near the end, near the end of his life, and it's a testimony of how far he had fallen from God. He actually, rather than going to God, he consults a medium to talk to Samuel. And when dead Samuel comes up in the vision, he says, you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, not exactly, but, but basically, <laughs> basically, that's what he says. And so, and so it's just something to think and something to keep in mind. And I don't know if any of you have ever been tempted to indulge in any of that, but let me tell you something. Don't. Why, when you can go to God? And by the way, horoscopes are a sham. Don't read, those, don't read that junk. If you want to know your future, go to God. Go to God. The third sin that, the, uh, that Isaiah rebukes them for, and a significant one, a very significant one, is social injustice. Isaiah 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. And the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. That widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? You see, care for the poor and needy and oppressed is a core teaching of the Bible in the Old and New Testament. Now, this is a heated matter of discussion today, and there are differences of opinion of what kind of policies will best support that, but I think we all have to agree that God cares for the poor and for the needy and for the helpless and for those who have no one to provide for them. And it's the church's responsibility to see that that happens. And part of the reason, not not all of it, of course, by any means, but part of the reason... That so many people are looking to the government for handouts is because the church is not doing what we're supposed to do to care for the needs of others. In 1 John 3, John says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Why not do something this week? Maybe you know someone who needs a little bit of help. Why not intentionally get something, take it to them, and say, God wanted me to give this to you. See what happens when we take an intentional act, step of faith. Not having to be asked, just, you just show up. With the love of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel and see what happens this week. For these sins and others, God judged the nation of Israel. God is holy, 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 and his wrath burns white hot against evil and wickedness. And that brings us to our next point, and that is this. Future hope comes only through forgiveness of sins. 
You see, God's compassion for his people burns with an equal intensity as his hatred against sin. God loves his people. And at risk of stating the obvious, even though it was the sins of Israel that led to their destruction, it means that the only way of restoration can come then through the forgiveness of our sins. And that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied God would do. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 44, 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, quotes the prophet Jeremiah. says, and the Holy Spirit bears, also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins no I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What's God saying? He's saying, your sin has separated you from me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deal with your sin. I'm going to take them away and where sin is forgiven. Reconciliation happens. Where the sin is taken away between us and God, then the path is open for us to come back to God. God forgives us of our sins to make a way to come back with Him. And that brings us to our final point. And that is this forgiveness of sin and restoration comes through God's servant king. Forgiveness of sin and restoration comes through God's servant king. So I'm going to read some lengthy passages of scripture here, but there's two major themes in Isaiah that have confused some that in Jesus Christ come together. There's these two major themes. There's the theme of God's king. Isaiah prophesies of a coming king who will rule over the world and over Israel and over his people forever. Famous passage, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his king forever to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Remember, Isaiah's prophesying during the days of the kings, and he's prophesying of this king. But this language that he uses, no earthly king could be who Isaiah is describing. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Isaiah is clearly saying that there is a king who is coming that is 
greater than our wildest imaginations. Who will restore us from our sin. So there's this theme in Isaiah of this coming king. And yet at the same time, Isaiah also prophesies of what people call the servant of the Lord. There's this mysterious figure that Isaiah references a number of times in his writings called the servant of the Lord. One example is in Isaiah 42. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoner from the dungeon, and from prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So who is this servant? It's rather mysterious. He has kingly duties in some ways. He will bring justice to the earth. But also the servant is gentle. (laughs) A bruised reed he won't break. A, A smoldering wick he won't snuff it out. He's a gentle servant and king. And not only this, but amazingly, God says that he would give this servant as a covenant. So remember the context of Israel. They lived under the covenant. They were exiled because they broke the covenant. And yet God says in this servant, he's going to give him as a covenant. What does it mean? It means it's a new covenant. In a person. A new way of relating to God. Through God's chosen servant. And not only this, but the most famous passage about the servant you're familiar with in Isaiah 52 and 53. says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they will see. And that which they have not heard they understand. He was despised. Verse 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, you got to understand, this had to be very confusing for the Jews. Because they knew they had a coming king and a descendant of David who will rule the world, who would rule the nations. But then Isaiah talks about this servant. And who's this servant? He, he, is, he is beaten and scourged to the point that even those who know him can't recognize him? What kind of king is that? He is pierced to pay, the sin, to pay for others' sins? It was God's will to crush him? What kind of king is that? In fact, this was so confusing that I've heard that some rabbis and Jewish teachers actually believed that there would be two messiahs. A suffering servant on one hand and a king on the other. Because they couldn't figure out how it could both be the same person. But we know who it is. We have privilege that they don't. We live on the other side of the cross. Where Jesus himself, on the hours before he died, said, My kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we have been healed. Praise God. We have been healed. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become The righteousness of God. You see, God in his infinite wisdom knew that we needed a suffering servant before we had a righteous king. But the king has come. And the Bible says that he came first to forgive us of our sins. And he, he told his disciples to proclaim the gospel. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 9 it says this. As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you waiting for him? You see, Jesus has already dealt with sins. When he comes back, 
It won't be to deal with sins, but it'll be twofold. It'll be to save his people, to, to raise them from the dead, and to set them on his throne with him forever. But it will also be to judge the world. Those who did not turn to him for forgiveness of sins, who did not have their sins borne by him, as revealed in the fact that they never turned, never trusted in him. Then the Bible says that they will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But we have hope for better things for you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you can today. You can turn from yourself, turn from your sin, look to Jesus, believe in him. Jesus not was alive, he is alive. And everyone who turns from him and trusts in him and surrenders to him and, and hands over their life to him and says, wherever you lead, I'll go. Whatever you say, I'll do. The Bible says such a person who turns to Jesus For you, for you, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Be adopted into his family, forgiven of your sins, and live forever with him. So if you don't know him, I pray that you would turn from your sin and trust in him this very moment. Call out to him for forgiveness and mercy, for him to come to rule to reign. Call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Let's pray.